Okay, thanks for coming back or staying with us here for the after the show portion. We've got a lot of questions uh, that we still have to go over, so maybe I can just jump right into it. Um, Here's a comment from someone uh, saying, I agree that ACT and MICM um, are essential for chronic mentally ill patients. I also agree that injections are key for this population. But my experience in various places I've worked is having the ability to administer them uh, in the community can be challenging. Um, What's your experience? What's our experience? Well, I think that you need good training. You need good supervision to to do act to deliver, or make them yeah. to deliver the treatment according to the evidence base. Because if it's too watered down, you're not going to get the results that you want to get, and people will say that doesn't mm-hmm. work. Um, we also have to think outside the box. Patients don't necessarily have to come and see their psychiatrist for the shot. Uh, they can be get it at the local uh, primary care clinic. There are play, uh, nurses that can give injection at home. Um, uh, visit, we can't home. bill for that. Well, the because the physician has to be on site in Texas, so you can't take the injection to the home. And so it does cause problems for our ACT That's team. a local rule? It's a, it, it's a Texas rule, so it, it does cause problems for our ACT team. Okay. Um, here's a question. Pati- the patient has tried multiple atypicals and has symptoms of tardive dyskinesia. What are the treatment options moving forward? Well, unfortunately, the illness is not going to go away. You have to continue treating the patient. So what we, the principles we use for patients who've developed irreversible tardive dyskinesia with numerous medications in the past is that we, we give them first an atypical rather than a conventional. By far, there's a big difference. The, uh, and second, maybe switching to clozapine may be the best option because there are some data that clozapine can gradually downregulate right. the, the supersensitivity. And in theory, at least not make it worse. And at least right. not make it worse. In, in our movement disorder clinic, uh, quetiapine is the second, uh, is second choice, yeah. not, as the, not as much evidence base right. as clozapine has right. for, uh, for any sort of treatment effect, but again, not making it worse. But the second principle is to use the, the lowest effective dose yeah. because it's a cumulative dose of, of antipsychotic dopamine-blocking agent over the years that is responsible for TD. Here's a question. The cost of long-acting new drugs is very high compared to uh, regular, I think they mean compared to oral agents. Actually, I chair the Missouri Medicaid Drug Utilization Review Board for the last 12 years. And, you know, you'd be surprised. The cost differential is not, uh, that's not really true. There's a wide spectrum of cost, to be Mm -hmm. sure. But you can find oral price per user per month, oral agents, and price per user per month, long-acting injectable, right on par. Well, and the the interesting thing is if they're not using the oral, you're spending all that money, and it's not getting into the person. Well, this is the cost-effectiveness argument. That's right. You've got to look at the whole package. The, 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 The savings... And keeping mm-hmm. the patient Absolutely. well, not just financial, but also in terms of sparing the patient progressive brain tissue damage, hospitaliz- quality of life. hospitalization, quality of life, deterioration, treatment resistance. Every relapse worsens the patient by another notch downhill. Well, and even if we, ju- I agree with you completely, Henry, but just wearing my fiscal hat, just wearing the Medicaid hat, um, you know, just cost, pure cost. The cost of a day in the hospital is very substantial. Absolutely. Yes, and that's why yeah. injectables can yeah. save you in, 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 from the same pocket if you're, if you're, if you're an integrated system of yeah. care, you really get savings from injectables. Yeah. But, you know, take, let, let me also take another perspective on this. I deeply resent the fact that psychiatric patients don't seem to deserve more expensive medications, whereas cancer patients 
can sometimes get a $50,000 medication that will just increase their lifespan by six more months. Mm -hmm. And then nobody blinks. Give them the $50,000 medication yeah. just to extend their life six months. Our patients are living for decades with this illness with a complete shambles and disability and loss of life, life yeah. in its essence, and we begrudge them. And yeah. it's a real big policy issue. It's a policy issue. I mean, to, to, where, to put the fiscal uh, arguments on the table, if you look at the top dollar drugs, top 25 drugs yes. by dollar in yes. Medicaid, some of those boutique uh, disease-modifying injectables will make, like, they'll be at the bottom of the top 25. Because of prevalence. It's prevalence. prevalence, exactly. Yes, it's prevalence. Our patients are going to be disabled for life, and so when you look at Social Security disability, then schizophrenia is number one. Yeah. They, so this is where you've got to get the whole policy argument going. It's, it's very challenging to argue why they should not be allowed to have high-quality medications. Well, but the, society the argument then is has going to, have to, to do pay with it. are they going to be income-generating and are they going to pay taxes? And I think there's a real tendency for people not to want to spend they, money they on will. this group of you individuals. Know, and it's very, I think it's wrong. Shit. No, I think it's wrong. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Here I'm not saying bra. I agree. No, no, I agree with you, but I want to tell you why the system policies are self-defeating because when, our, when I have patients who've done very well and could go back to work, but they didn't want to give up their Medicaid benefits because they can't afford health care if they go to get a Absolutely. job. Absolutely. It's not yeah. just the monthly income. Right. It's being able to afford their medication. Yeah. That's the problem. Let me uh, change gears with another question. Uh, as you all know, patients with schizophrenia make consistently poor dietary and lifestyle choices. Fast food, smoking, sedentary we all lifestyle. Make like I'm going to say, it's you know, <laughs> what's our statistically excuse? speaking, there tends to be more of that, but but it's plenty of that going around in the general population. Oral atypicals, the questioner says, like a landspin or closed bean, can exacerbate risk mm -hmm. of metabolic syndrome. What does the panel recommend to help us reduce the metabolic syndrome in our patients with schizophrenia? And of course, metabolic syndrome is a metaphor here. I mean, right. the individual criteria or what we're targeting. <clears throat> And I think it's the same approaches that we're supposed to be taking in the general population. Right. We can do more, though. We yeah. can go to people's houses and take all their little snack foods and hide them in the vegetable drawer. <laughs> they will never find them. And then you put the fruits and vegetables right up front where you want the healthy foods, right where they can grab them. And they won't look for the other foods as much. And yes. you, you can help them with the diet and exercise program. As long as you can get reimbursed for home visits, there's a lot more you can do. Well, even at not necessarily home visit, I know community mental health centers in my, in my city have become enlightened enough that they removed all the junk food from their vending machines mm -hmm. and have put healthy vegetable, uh, vegetables and fruits, and they put uh, uh, stationary exercise bikes in the waiting room so patients can cycle while waiting That's for their appointment. That's what I was going to say. They wait there for hours well, and, and have somebody this, go out there and do some aerobics. This or? ties back to the evidence-based medicine, too. Sometimes you have, I mean, I'm thinking of a particular study where it was uh, risperidone plus uh, valproic acid compared to monotherapy yes. risperidone, compared to monotherapy alanzapine and And the point was adding valproic acid could turn risperidone into a weight gain drug like monotherapy. Yeah. Faster alanzapine. acting, but at a price. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and by four weeks, there was no difference in, right. the, in the outcome and the long-term follow-up. reduced the yeah. significance. Yeah. But, but <laughs> the point is, there's not a sometimes we pile on the second and the third drug, and it's contributing to the... Right. 
I agree. Monotherapy is the a other mantra. issue. Is I think there's a huge evidence base for how we in the general population, including our patients, can uh, lower our risk. And I think psychiatry really needs to get back in touch with that evidence. The diabetes prevention program, yeah. for example, people with pre-diabetes primary outcome was progression on to frank diabetes. Diet and exercise was twice as good as metformin. The Data Safety Monitoring Board called the study off early. And here in psychiatry, we're, you're seeing people using metformin for people who aren't even pre-diabetic. We're doing a study <laughs> on metformin right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're trying to versus placebo. Yeah. Well, it's hard to get people to actually it is hard to exercise get. and change their diet. Oh, it's, 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 it's very, very difficult. we just talked about difficult. behavioral interventions Excellent. working, you know, for adherence. And sure. behavioral interventions they do work. can get some traction. Metformin is not risk-free. People need that support, and they don't have that support. The doctor tells them, yeah. you know, don't eat so much. I want to underscore. see the sodas. <laughs> Metformin is off-label for uh, yeah. prevention, and it's off-label. Mm -hmm. It's treatment-approved for diabetes. Right. Mm -hmm. It's off-label for this idea of weight gain prevention, yeah, things like that. Um, the other issue, uh, well, let, let me try to get in as many more questions in as possible. Um, here's a question. Can you provide links for some of the assessment resources? I utilize several scales, PANS, et cetera, but I'm always interested in new tools. We're going to make sure links for everything that we've talked about today is up on the CME um, uh, uh, Outfitters.com website, so just go there. But uh, I want to commend this person who said that they use the PANS uh, sorry, regularly. Neuroscience CME uh, Dot com. Okay, so that's the site you go to. My compliments to this colleague because he belongs to the he or she belongs to the one percent of clinicians who are using yes. uh, rating scales. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What if a paranoid patient won't go for work for a workup or treatment and is not suicidal or homicidal? What do we do? Well, I think that's the tough it's, part. It, it, it's These are tough. some of the rhetorical questions we can never answer. Yeah. My my answer to this based on my experience sooner or later. This person is going to get in trouble, and then they'll be committable, and then we treat them, and they get, come out of their paranoia. Yeah. But unfortunately, we have sometimes to wait. Yeah. Here's a great question. What's, what's a more effective indicator of metabolic risk, waist circumference or lipids? Are there rules regarding uh, measuring waist circumference, or can I just weigh the patient? Yes, there are rules for measuring yeah. waist, mm -hmm. and it's very erratic if you don't get training exactly where to put yeah. the tape measure. It's the circumference at the level of the iliac crest, right. the top of your hip bones. But the problem is, if, if you want to do a cross-sectional ballpark of where the patient sits with respect to the population and risk, waist circumference is really very good. It is very good. Um, there are the problem there. when you're going to measure change yeah. is that these small variations in inhale, exhale, suck in your belly, let yeah. it, it can lead to <laughs> changes at the same level of magnitude as some of the treatment effects that yes. we're trying to measure. But again, mm -hmm. the, the non-fasting triglyceride, a one-time cross-sectional triglyceride in, in the Katie study was found to predict metabolic syndrome status. Yeah. So that can be used as well. And fasting triglyceride fasting is a well well-known indicator yeah. of uh, insulin resistance. It's not perfect for African Americans. You might have to yeah. use fasting insulin. But the ratio of triglycerides to HDL, HDL is, the, pretty good is the best yeah. formula to detect metabolic yeah. syndrome. And the issue is cross-sectionally, we do much better with these risk predictors than we do as a measure of change. That's correct. Uh, and as a measure of change, looking in children at BMI percentile or BMI z-score, measuring change in HDL in particular looks like it might be a pretty good handle. Here's a question. As you all know, patients with schizophrenia, uh, we, no, we did that one. When you speak of family supports, 
Are you knowledgeable of evidence-based peer support and recovery programs and tools such as the Wellness Recovery Action Plan? This is a very good comment because we talked about Mm -hmm. family supports, but we did not cover the peer support. Well, and it's very important. We have a group at our community mental health center. They're called prosumers, proactive consumers, and they provide peer support. They bring people the first time to the clinic. They introduce them to the people at the front desk and to the doctors, and they, they may it's go an with them to their program. appointment. I've it's seen a, peers it's do very so much important. good. So much good. It's very peers, important. Peer support is, I think, essential. I don't know how many places use that. It helps both people with their recovery. Absolutely. Uh, here's a question. What about the newer atypical antipsychotics coming to market? Is there any evidence that acenapine or iloperidone bring new treatment options to the practitioner? Well, uh, I have experience with both of those, and, and I think they are good atypicals, uh, oral atypicals. Neither of them is injectable. Acenapine is a sublingual tablet. has to be put under the tongue. Iloperidone is an oral tablet. Uh, BID. These are now, just to orient, these are just, newly just approved. Just launched in the yeah. last two months, three yeah. months. And uh, they are serotonin dopamine antagonists. And both of them have a decent metabolic profile. Yeah. So. And, and iloperidone approved for schizophrenia. Yes, along, uh, only. Acenapine approved for, for schizophrenia bipolar and bipolar disorder. Yes. Uh, and, and full disclosure, I was on the Data Safety Monitoring Committee for uh, Centipede's development. They had about 18 studies running simultaneously. Right. Big, big program. So um, here's a question. How can you start to get care for someone who has had paranoid delusions and a decline in self-care, grooming, and mood for the last year but is not suicidal, homicidal, refuses to get a workup? How, do the, how can the patient's family start the ball rolling Mother of two, this mother of two is living with one of the children. What is the spouse to do? I mean, it's the same question we were We've just talking about. We've seen that before. Yeah, really difficult uh, challenges. But getting case management involved as early as possible, uh, this would be the one comment we haven't made. If it's just the family as the interface with this problem, you, you run the risk, especially if they're quite ill, of really corroding that relationship. If you can get some third party involved to sort of take the heat, if you will, yes. trying to leverage and support the, the family. Have a case manager or social worker support the family, educate the family about the slightest change in the mental status of the yeah. patient or the functioning so that they can initiate right. a And I would also recommend probate. the family to go to the, the, the local NAMI chapter yes. because they have yes. very good ideas. Excellent They've been support. dealing with these issues for yeah. decades, and they have very good ideas to help other family yeah. members. Uh, here's a question. Motivational interviewing was mentioned several times during our program. Do you think motivational interviewing skills training is or will be included in psychiatrist training? We do that all the time. Yeah. I think so. I mean, our, our residents get yeah. workshop and motivational interviewing because it's really an excellent generic approach to a, a multitude of uh, disorders. It's widely used in substance abuse uh, mm-hmm. you know, to get them into treatment, but uh, it works also in other disorders. Um, so... The, um, the, there was somebody who asked a question. Here it is. There was somebody who asked a question and has emailed um, that, that from a policy standpoint, uh, some of our colleagues in the audience have now been uh, forced by their systems to be prescribing more conventional antipsychotics, and they're seeing more tardive dyskinesia. I am not surprised. I've done tardive dyskinesia research for, for a decade in the old, bad old days, and I would never give a conventional to anybody until I have exhausted, you know, a series of atypicals. Uh, it, it, is, it is going to happen in 5% per year. 
That's the eight different studies have shown, follow-up studies. In the it, younger population. In conventional, Even in worse young, in the elderly. Yeah, in the elderly, it's 25% in the first year, 52% in the second year, 60% yeah. in the third year. It's, it's, to me, it's unethical to use conventionals when you, still, when you have safer drugs. Not that they are safer in general. There is some metabolic risk for some of them. Yeah. But when used at low doses, you avoid the EPS. Our residents have not seen a thyroid dyskinesia patient sometimes for uh, two years. Well, this was the other comment that this questioner had raised that the, some of the ch- younger trainees haven't seen tardive no, dyskinesia. Thanks, to, to, the, thanks yeah. to the advent yeah. of the atypicals. So but then the question is, presumably in that system, I mean, you know, th- there may be, uh, whatever we think about these policies, there may be a fail-first policy. You know that mm-hmm. fail-first policy is going to cost them an arm and a leg. In the they may be haul. doing this for financial reason, but they're ruining people's health. And one case, one lawsuit is going to offset all of the savings they made by switching to cheaper drugs. Well, and, and this is one of the outcomes of the Katie study. And what I what the Katie study sort of said is not one medicine is better than another medicine. But what's interesting is we've done clinical trials for decades. And at the beginning when there were no atypicals, people were beating down our door to get in these drug studies. And right. now that there's more atypicals, it's much harder to get people to want to change their They don't medicine. want to change, right. Yeah. So they're voting with their feet. There's something, you know. Oh, it's an, uh, I, I can't even tell you how, how much I resent going backwards in medicine. I mean, yes, there occasionally is, is a role for some uh, conventional at low doses in some patients. But as a principle... I would not use them. It's like going back and using reserpine for high blood pressure, mm-hmm. which, of course, is laughable. Yeah. So here's a question or a comment. Is there data to support one long-acting injectable over another? Are, are there uh, any patients, are there any issues regarding patient preference or uh, site injection pain? Um, and and th- this questioner raises um, the whole issue of access that we've been talking about mm-hmm. and the issue of cost. Well, I'll tell you, I've, had, uh, I've done the FDA studies with both uh, uh, Risperdal Consta, the long-acting Risperidone, and uh, also with the Paliperidone Palmitate, known as Invega Sustena. Uh, and one is biweekly, which has been with us for almost a decade now, and one, the, the recent one, uh, Paliperidone uh, Palmitate, is monthly, but there's more differences between them besides the advantage of a monthly injection. The, uh, the Paliperidone Palmitate... It can be kept at room temperature. It's already formulated, ready to inject. You don't have to mix and inject. And you don't need oral medication for three or four weeks as you inject them. It works right away. It's released in the bloodstream. Uh, it, makes a big, it makes a it big makes difference. A big our, difference. Our patients have a really, really hard time getting to the clinic every two weeks. We have to provide the transportation right. for that. Right. But, you know, but Risperidon... Well, uh, this is, remember, haloperidol and flufenazine decanoate Haloperidol came to dominate uh, yes. right. use because one was Q2 weeks and right. one was Q4 weeks. The monthly thing is a big deal it's for big some deal. people, yeah. but I think also having to take oral for three or four weeks until... It's very confusing because a lot of times our doctors forgot to DC the oral and and then they're on double dose and they have side effects. But let me tell you, both of them are are impressive efficacy and actually... And there's no head-to-head trials. There are no head-to-head trials as of yet. Uh, I think there was one in Europe. But uh, let me let me uh, finally say that uh, Risperidon consta is actually approved for bipolars now, mm-hmm. and I've had good uh, prevention, relapse prevention with it there. Paliperidon palmitate is only approved for schizophrenia right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
What is meant by electronic refill methods? Could we talk about that a little bit? Oh, uh, as a method for assessing adherence, you can look at electronic refills. If someone is supposed to have a prescription that lasts for 30 days and they don't come back to you for 45 days or they don't get another prescription for 45 days, they've had 15 days that they weren't covered by medication. And they might not be 15 consecutive days, but it really doesn't matter because in a large Medicaid database, Valenstein uh, and her colleagues found that even if you, you have a gap lasting 11 days, you have a higher risk for hospitalization for people with, with schizophrenia. Uh, so here's a um, sort of two related questions. What percentage of patients are willing to take an injection compared to orals? Injectables won't work if the patient doesn't return. And then a related question, what if the patient doesn't want to take injectables? Is there something called patient choice as opposed to physician choice? Well, that part of the issue is recommending to your patient what you think this is, is, the shared decision is right. Business. right. And, you know, have them talk to you about what their concerns are about it, yep. injectables and maybe doing an experiment and giving it a try. I don't know um, how many of uh, I know you two remember that when the first atypical, you know, frontline atypical antipsychotic came out, risperidone. 1994, many patients did not want to, you know, take the mm-hmm. chance and try this new fancy sure. stuff. So these discussions are not single conversations. No, it's these, over time. No, but a, let, me t- let me answer yeah. this question about yeah. what percent of patients are willing to accept. Yeah. My answer is it depends. And I will complete that sen- answer. It depends on the physician. That's right. It You'd really be does. surprised how many, my patients, 99% of them will accept whatever I present to them if I believe it's good for them and I, they trust me, I don't give because it to... Because you have a relationship. I already have a relationship. You don't present a long-acting injectable to somebody who's just been admitted. You have to get them stabilized on oral, get, to, get them to develop a relationship with you, trust you. And, and if this is you, an outpatient, this may be conversations that right. take place over months. That's right. Absolutely. It is a, a gradual process, but in the long term, you really do that patient a favor, especially if there's a history of relapses before. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a related question to what we're talking about. Is, the psych- is a psychiatrist's inability to establish a trusting relationship with the patient a barrier? Yes. That's a huge, <laughs> that's a huge, huge barrier. barrier. Um, that's going to be a big problem. Um, uh, Henry, here's one about a centipede and iloperidone again, but asking, based on the evidence available, is there anything that would differentiate these from the currently available compounds? Well, senapine is sublingual. It's the first sublingual, uh, atypical, regularly sublingual. And, and uh, eloperidone has, uh, that's one feature of a senapine. And we wait, you know what, my answer is wait for a year. Yeah. And you're going to find that there's a subset of patients who do extremely well on a senapine and benefit from it. There's a role, a place for every antipsychotic. Eloperidone uh, has, has actually uh, shown, uh, studies with eloperidone have shown that there are biomarkers, I mean, pharmacogenetic markers that can predict the response or the side effects. It's a wonderful study published in Journal of Clinical Psychiatry June of this year uh, where there are six markers, uh, SNPs actually, single nucleotide polymorphisms, mm-hmm. uh, that if, if the patient has more, the more the patient have of those markers, the higher the response to the degree that if they have all six, it's tenfold better response than a comparative antipsychotic. Right. And we're almost out of time. Quick couple of questions. Can you comment on the necessity of dosing patients with two or more times the FDA-approved daily dosages for an antipsychotic? I would comment, you know, usually the evidence doesn't support that. There was just the... um, But the clinical practice supports that. I I would also first make sure they're 
taking, taking it. it. That's Because what happens one. is is the dose kind of creeps up over the years because people are only taking half their dose. So yeah. that when we come along and yeah. help them take every dose, yeah. Yeah. they're just snowed under. Right. And the, I think we would make the distinction between group effects versus the individual, individual. patients. Yes. So when you look at the group where uh, olanzapine finally, you know, the trial came out, 40 versus 20, in the whole sample, 40 versus 20 wasn't okay. clinically better. It did cause more weight gain, right. but, but there may be individual there patients. There are, and my, my uh, rationale for giving patients a higher than the approved dose, FDA dose, is that these patients are treatment resistant. And they, the, the FDA studies do not include treatment resistant yeah. patients. They only use very clean Past, previously responsive patients, and then in the real world, we okay. have to give this drug. We're, out of, we're just about out of time. I want to yes. thank everyone for hanging with us here in the after the show time frame. We still had questions that we did not get to, and, um, and we want to thank everybody for their patience. We're going to put as many of the answers uh, that we can onto the website, so please uh, check the website afterwards. Enjoy your holiday season. Thanks thank for tuning in. Thank you very much. In. Bye.